Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. There is always a South Florida angle, and that is where we begin this week. The world watches, transfixed, horrified, and in real time, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Neighborhoods destroyed as a remarkable resistance mounts. In South Florida, the Ukrainian and Russian communities with direct ties to this catastrophe have been joined by others in a call for peace, solidarity, and an end of the bloodshed. Parker Branton is at a Ukrainian Catholic church in Northwest Miami-Dade, where another protest is set to begin. And Parker, this is one we know of several rallies we have seen in just the past few days. Tell us about that one. Well, what happened there? Michael, parishioners are wrapping up a service here at the Ukrainian Catholic Church. And throughout the weekend, into the weekend, we have seen by the hundred South Floridians coming out to support those people in Ukraine. This morning, parishioners praying after a difficult week for their family and friends in Ukraine. We need to be together so that our, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine feel our support and feel our spirit. Across South Florida, Ukrainian Americans unite. At Young Circle Park in Hollywood Saturday, hundreds rallying. My friends sleep in the subways. In the morning when there's no attacks, they actually go to work. We're simply defending ourselves. We want the attack to stop. Holding signs reading, save Ukraine, stop Putin, and USA, let's help Ukraine save the world. When I asked my father to come here a week ago, he said no. We will take the guns and go and fight because this is our land. Many of their loved ones are living in fear, concerned about a full-scale military takeover. They want to see tougher sanctions from the Biden administration, but mainly they are hoping for a peaceful resolution. For the bloodshed to stop spilling. We will never you know, give up and we will never let the Russian regime to take over the country. Once parishioners finish their service this morning, they are expected to gather in front of this Ukrainian Catholic Church and pray for the country of Ukraine. Glenna. Parker, we thank you and keep on that great story. Senator Rick Scott was in South Florida this week. He denounced the Russian invasion, but his major focus was on promoting what he calls his 11-point plan to rescue America. That is a very conservative statement of principles and a kind of a blueprint for Republican candidates to win elections next fall and the White House in 2024. I asked about some of the more controversial points in this plan, but we began our conversation about Ukraine. Senator Scott, great to see you. Thanks for your time. The big story facing the United States and the world, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, the day that, in fact, Russia invaded, you issued a statement saying, faulting the president, saying uh, things, quote, things will only get worse now that Biden has failed to prevent this Russian aggression. How had the, how did the president fail to so, prevent it? So I think it starts with this. I think you can't be an appeaser. First off, if you look at Biden's background, he's always appeased dictators. He's never really, he just never really stood up to dictators. On top of that, I think if you look at the Afghanistan withdrawal, it was a debacle, just a complete debacle. So you have guys like, like Putin or like Xi or the Ayatollah in Iran, they look at that and say, 
You know, is America really as strong as it used to be? Are they really willing to stand up for, for what they believe in? And then, then he shut down, Biden shuts down the Keystone Pipeline and gives, gives um, Putin the Nord Stream 2. I mean, that didn't, that didn't make any sense. So he made us more energy independent, or dependent and, and then made Europe more dependent on, on Russia. Those things don't, you know, it doesn't make sense. Then why didn't he do more of the sanctions earlier? All right. Well, whether you, and you clearly do not admire his foreign policy, although that was part of why he was elected, was he said, I'm experienced, I know how to uh, run foreign policy. But, you know, he and his administration tried for months, you know, to warn the allies, to warn the world that uh, uh, Putin was going to invade. Now, what more could he have done? Because Putin clearly made up his mind was not going to be deterred. I think step one is he should never have been an appeaser. I mean, if you look, if you look at what Biden's always done, he's always appeased dictators. He's never stood up to them. That's number one. Number two is the way that we left Afghanistan made America look very weak. And it, I mean, think about what Biden did. He says, oh, we're not gonna leave American citizens behind. He did. There's still American citizens left behind. He brought out the military. And then, then he, he, the, the, you watch what happened at the Kabul airport. Yeah. So well, you look at those things. was a humiliation. I think most people would agree the way we left was, you know, an abject failure. But having said that, what should we do now? What should the president do now? What would you do now, you know, in uh, Ukraine? Well, first off, your, your heart goes out to the Ukrainian citizens. Uh, we're already seeing a lot of death, a lot of people injured, and so your heart goes out to them. Uh, Putin is clearly a thug. He needs to be held accountable. Uh, so I'm glad that Germany and the president has decided that Nord Stream 2 is not gonna go forward now. It should never go forward. He should announce right now, Nord Stream 2 will never go forward. Number two is the sanction. I'm glad he's put. I'm glad the president's put sanctions on, but he needs to sanction Putin now. He needs to. He needs to go sanction after Putin's money. To declare him a war criminal. He, I, he's clearly a war criminal. He should. He should make sure that we do everything we can to impact Putin's assets. Uh, Putin supposedly is worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. We do. We should be doing everything we can to go after Putin and everybody around him, as they've they've just taken all this money away from the Russia out of the, out of the Russian economy. So we got to we got to be very aggressive. And by the way, and you're right, Putin, uh, Biden said, oh, he was this great world leader. He knew how to do foreign policy. Why couldn't he get Germany to make it easier to get equipment over into Ukraine? Why couldn't Why couldn't he, you know, get the, the entire world community to be more active? He didn't. Senator, this week you released this, and here's a copy of your American Rescue Plan, this 11-point plan, which you issued. Um, why does America need to be rescued? Well, I think if you if you look look at look at how just take how it impacts the family right now. So we have unbelievable inflation. We have 30 trillion dollars worth of debt. We not we're not generating many jobs. Uh, you know, people are not getting back to work. We have a government that's paying people not to work. We have um, the woke left basically controls the culture, the economy, our government. Uh, the um, look at our kids are being taught that if you're, you're if this if you're part of this group, you're an oppressor. If you're this group, you're oppressed. I'm totally different you mean than school curriculum. Yeah, CRT. I mean, right. You know that's not taught in Florida, but it's it's taught around the country. I mean, they, I was on I was on. Um, CNN, I think back in December, they said it's not being taught in Virginia. I said, absolutely, it's on the website. 
And so I think I think it's important that parents have the choice. Parents make the best choices of where what what child uh, a kid should go to. Uh, and we ought to get let's, let's focus on doing what what happened to me. Teach me about our our country. That our country is the greatest country ever. Is there things we have to improve? Yeah. And don't and support the police. I mean, go through, if you go through these well, issues, who, who doesn't support the police? I mean, clearly the Black Lives Matter movement of last summer and of the George Floyd incident, people were critical of the police. No, but they wanted to defund it, Michael. Well, some did. And look at look at the crime rate in this country now. Look at the murder rate. I mean, that that impacts everybody. And, and this inflation, this ridiculous inflation that we're dealing with right now, it's all caused by Democrat spending and this, you can't get a permit. I mean, it's ridiculous. A, a lot of the inflation, I'm not an economist, was caused by pumping a couple of trillion dollars into the economy when the pandemic caused the economy to basically shut down, people lost their jobs. I mean, there had to be a rescue plan and that was at least a major factor but they for kept, inflation, wasn't Michael, it? Michael, but they kept doing it. I mean, last, last year the Democrats by themselves passed $1.9 trillion, okay? And like 10% of it had anything to do with COVID. You know, they kept paying people not to work. I mean, that's not how you build an economy. You don't tell your kids that. You don't, say, you don't tell your kids, here, here, stay home, don't work. Right? And, then, and, then, and then they're so inconsistent with the information they gave us on COVID which hurt, hurt our businesses. The situation certainly evolved. Senator, you know, the, the reason why some Republicans are critical of your plan, even though they're not coming out publicly very much and saying it, is that it calls for a tax increase for people who don't pay income taxes, you know, to have, as you put it, skin in the game. But, you know, these are people who have gone through the worst pandemic in a century. They lost jobs. They struggled to pay their rent to buy groceries. Uh, are you asking them to pay higher taxes? Of course not. Michael, think about it. I cut taxes and fees 100 times as, as governor. I don't, I don't support raising taxes, but here's, here's what I want to make sure of. I mean, we've got a, we have hardworking Americans. They're paying income tax and property tax and sales tax. We've got our retirees that paid all this in. And then we have other people. We have billionaires not paying uh, income taxes. This has got to, we, we got to have a system that's fair. We can't, we can't, can't have this group over here saying, you guys go keep paying taxes, but us, we want to take all this money from the federal government. We, you know, this woke crowd wants to take money from the federal government, be dependent, and not pay any taxes. Yeah, That's not fair. But Senator, you, here you were talking about people who are below the poverty line or lower Absolutely middle not, class Michael. people. Absolutely not. I've never said that. And by the way, Michael, think about it. I cut taxes. I've all I've cut taxes and fees a hundred times. What I'm saying is we're going to have a system where we don't ha expect this one group, the hardworking Americans, pay, pay all the income taxes. You're a billionaire. You, you know, you, sh you should be pay your fair share. You're somebody who wants to be dependent on government, take all these different programs, not pay anything. That's not fair. Yeah. On immigration here in your 11-point plan, you say we should complete the wall and name it after in honor of Donald Trump. Uh, what sense does that make? I mean, a lot of experts say, you know, do what the Israelis do or others use high-tech kind of electronics instead of building a wall. And then President Trump, of course, said Mexico was going to pay for the wall and Mexico never paid anything. First off, you should do all the above. You should you should have electricity. That you know you I mean you should have lights to so people can see things. You should have cameras, and you should there's places where you do need a wall. 
right? This administration has decided they don't want any of that. I've, got, I've gone to the border a bunch of times. There's the walls up right here where they had the gate. They decided not, not to put it up. I went to another part where they had the lights, the cameras and the lights. They decided not to electrify it. That's crazy. What we've got to do is we, we I like immigration. I'm, I, I live in an immigration state. I like living here. But we want legal immigration. We don't want an open border where 100,000 people die of drug overdoses because the drugs can just flow across the border. A hundred, Michael, 100,000 people in one year died of drug overdose. A lot of it fentanyl coming from China with, uh, through the cartel. That's wrong. No, it's tragic. There, there's no question. You know, um, I have to say, uh, this is the kind of a plan that people who are going to run for president issue. Are you thinking about running for president? No. No, what I'm trying to do is rescue the country. We've got to change. I have, Look, I had a plan with how I wanted to change the state of Florida. Okay, and I work that plan every day. I, I believe yeah. we have to have Let's a plan to rescue the Let's get to work and people, you, people got jobs and went to work. Right. And then with this, I believe we have to rescue this country. I think our country's in trouble. It's not the country I grew up in. When you watch television, it's not the country you grew up in. We're worried about our families. We're worried about our freedoms. I mean, this is, we have got to start standing up for the things we believe in. We ought to support our flag. We ought to play, say the Pledge of Allegiance. We ought to know this is the greatest country ever. There's, no, there's been more opportunity created in America than any place in the world. The left wants to kill all that. Finally, I want to ask you, you are the chair of the Senate Republican uh, Re-election Committee. I might not have that exactly right. And you travel around the country and you're trying to get you know, Republicans elected or re-elected to the Senate. You recently went to Mar-a-Lago, met with uh, former President Trump. Is, what was that? Was that sort of a bow in his direction? Is he the de facto leader now of the Republican Party? Well, the leader of the party is the voter, as we all know. Um, I mean, the, if, if you don't get the votes, uh, that's who wins. Uh, the, um, if you remember back in 2010 when I ran, uh, I, was not the, I was not the establishment candidate. And the voters made a decision who, who ran the party, and they did. You know, what, what I'm trying to do is get all Republicans to work together to get the Senate back. So we need everybody to work together. Um, we, you know, we've got, uh, so I, I'm trying to work with all Republicans all across the country. And President get, Trump, is he the leader of the Republican Party? The voters are. Senator, great speaking with you. I hope to do it again soon. Always great to see you. All right. Senator Scott also declined to say if he was going to vote to confirm Kajani Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. And when we come back, Florida has a new confirmed Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Latipo, in his first one-on-one -on -one interview right here next. After months of controversy and weeks of scrutiny, Florida Surgeon General nominee Joseph Latipo was confirmed by the state Senate this week in a contentious hearing. Conspiracy theories and political rhetoric over widely accepted public health practices and science. In the middle of a pandemic, Dr. Latipo said not one word about COVID. About, about vaccines. And we can't have the third largest state in the country's top doctor being a yes man to a politician. After that, in his first one-on-one -on -one interview, it's with us. Dr. Latipo pushes back on critics, defends his data and his decisions when we sat down to talk with him in Tallahassee this week. Senator Farmer who said 
They called your last six months an unmitigated disaster. I remember you, hearing that. How do you hear that? What were you thinking? I, um, I, <laughs> I think that for me, politics is new. So, and I've learned a lot. I've received a very rapid education over the past few months. So, you know, do I enjoy people not saying very nice things about me? No, I don't, you know, enjoy, enjoy that. Do people have a right to have their opinions? Absolutely. And is my role here something that's going to change in terms of my priorities because someone doesn't like me or thinks that I'm the worst person ever that, you know, and didn't even go to school and have no education and training? No, that's not going to change. I think it was Senator Pizzo who said um, the optics are, not verbatim, but I remember, he says the optics are that you are a yes man to the governor. Do you remember him saying that? Yes, I do. Um, are you? Well, I like Governor DeSantis quite a lot. I, I really admire him. I have great admiration for him, and I'm very grateful that he's here because no one else around the country, there's not been any other leader that's had such clarity during a period of time where there's been so much confusion and, in fact, mass confusion. Okay, so, the, the question is... Oh, I'm getting, oh, okay. I'm getting there. So, I, so I, I very much like him. You know, yes, man. No, I'm. You know, I'm not. I, that's just. I mean, I think I wouldn't even be where I am right now if I'm a yes man. In fact, you know, I've taken positions uh, based on what I thought was the truth or more accurate than uh, than what the general, what my colleagues were often saying, and it's not been. You know, that, that hasn't been a free ride. I'm not really sure what to make of it. You know, between the politics and. Um, you know, I, I just don't know what's like sincere, what's not, and of course, people are welcome to um, have their opinions. The, the one piece that that I've not been fond of is when people make stuff up. So I was, I didn't like it when uh, when people said that I didn't take care of patients with COVID because it's factually incorrect. You know, I I took care of patients with COVID, and you know, and then sort of. So that bothered me because it's factually incorrect. Same thing with all, you know, he has no experience in this and that. And, you know, trying people sort of recreating who I am. You are the governor's appointee. He appointed you for a reason. He agrees with what you're about. Yeah. You agree with what his, he's about. Do you, are, would you be comfortable if he came to you and said, Dr. Latipo, uh, I'd like our administration to go in this direction. Would you be comfortable if you opposed his ideas telling him so? Oh, totally. Absolutely. And in fact, if I, if I don't see the, an issue the same way as the governor, I would definitely tell him. I mean, I, you know, I, I love the guy. I, I, I really, really, really like him. I very much like him and very much admire him. But, you know, I won't, um, for any reason, compromise what I believe to be true or accurate or representative of scientific data. So you, during your confirmation uh, hearings, they, they asked you some pretty pointed questions. Do you think vaccinations are effective? Um, they accused you of not answering those questions. Are vaccinations for COVID effective? So we're, we are running into the same problem that, that uh, we kind of, I ran into that day, which is that there's been, um, the political aspect of this pandemic has made it hard to separate something that is a scientific question, which is how effective is, you know, whatever medication or whatever therapy for any, for a specific outcome from this idea that, you know, does this work? 
does this work is really a political question. The scientific question is about um, is about specific clinical outcomes. Okay, so so is the question, and would my, would my better question be, Dr. Latipo, here's my medical background, here's who I am, here's my charts, would a vaccination work for me? Is that the question? That's actually, that's actually a really great clinical question. So that's the kind of question that a patient, you know, would ask me. At a hearing, I felt a need to be very precise about the words I used. So, you know, basically what I said then um, is, kind of is what's been supported by the scientific literature, which is that like natural immunity, they are effective at reducing the likelihood that someone becomes severely ill from COVID-19. If that's the case, why not do much more to promote vaccines among those who have been vaccine hesitant? That's a, that's a good question. So I think that um, one of the things that we've lost sight of during this pandemic and really far in the rearview mirror is choice. And this has actually been a cornerstone of public health. What we've seen instead is coercion, and there's been plenty of coercion. The you know, sort of becoming a part of kind of this voice that wants to keep telling people that such and such works and therefore you have to take it and therefore I'm justified in denying you employment or denying you access to eating in a restaurant or denying you education because this works. I, I think that's immoral and I'm just not ever going to be a part of that. So your office put out a whole new set of PSAs that changed what was a very vaccine-oriented PSA messaging campaign to a much more holistic, choices on the table kind of messaging. Was that by design and why? You know, it was by design and it's because they're a component of health, but they're not all there is to health. I mean, think about the fact that we've had two years now and how often have people like Dr. Fauci said anything about other things that are enormous contributors to health? So things like obesity, that's a, that's a very sub substantial contributor to how well your immune system works. That's really important, you know, and it's important for other things like cancer and heart disease. So holistic health is absolutely the message. How much pressure do you feel like you're under, if any, to match the politics and be politically correct? I don't feel much pressure. I mean, I feel a little bit of pressure. Some things are just abjectly political. For example, the monoclonal antibody dispute that we had with the uh, federal government. Where are we in, the, in that supply chain issue now? Well, we do have uh, still monoclonals that are coming to Florida. We've got to work with the federal government to get them here. And, and how is that working with the federal government, really? It, it's, it's fine. Uh, it, you know, it, it's fine. You presented yourself as a doctor who does not, who challenges the narrative, who's not going to go along with what everyone else says. You're a researcher. Um, and people have used that against you. What do you think about that? I don't know. I think um, I'm, I'm not sure really what to make of that. And it's not so much, I don't set out to challenge the narrative. I've just set out to be as honest as possible. And we've truly had just a lack of dishonesty. And the masks are a great example. Before the, dis, pardon me, a lack of honesty. And the masks are a great example. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence that we haven't recommended them before in bad flu seasons. 
they, we've tested them. There have been many, many, many clinical trials, and it, they just most of them don't really show a benefit. And that's that's just the truth. So this this 180 degree shift that you know, hey, if everyone wears these, the pandemic will be over and you'll be protected. I mean, that's that's abjectly in conflict with what the scientific literature shows. What about everything else health related in Florida? Yeah, we we have fun initiatives that are targeting all of those areas that you mentioned. They're sort of still in the works. So I don't want to reveal too much, but no, we, we actually have, <laughs> we have, um, so, you know, we have some, uh, we have some initiatives related to the opioid crisis to better connect people who are addicted to treatment. We have uh, some new initiatives related to smoking cessation to really amplify the use of our evidence-based smoking cessation resources. And we have some really fun, we have a really fun initiative we're working on related to obesity. So that's in development and I can't wait for it to become public. Dr. Joseph Latipo confirmed as Florida Surgeon General 24-15. That is right along party lines this week. Up next, local reaction to the nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. A nominee with South Florida ties and a South Florida legacy. Judge Jackson? Yes. This is Joe Biden. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you, Mr. President? Well, you're going to be more wonderful. I'd like you to go to the Supreme Court. How about that? Sir, I would be so honored. A life-changing moment. The nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is groundbreaking and gratifying for South Florida because she grew up in Miami and graduated from Palmetto High School. Again, the South Florida angle. The Harvard-educated former public defender and defense attorney was appointed to the federal bench, the appeals court, and now President Biden's nominee to be the first black woman Supreme Court justice. Good thing she answered the phone, huh? L'Oreal <laughs> Arscott is a Miami attorney and the immediate past president of the Wilkie Ferguson Jr. Bar Association. Ms. Arscott has worked to get black women appointed or elected to the bench in South Florida. And L'Oreal R. Scott is also the newly elected chair of the Miami-Dade County Independent Civilian Panel, the ICP, which is going to review complaints of misconduct against the Miami-Dade Police Department. L'Oreal, good morning or good afternoon by now. It is so great to have you on our program. Welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, especially to discuss such a historic, historic nomination. Well, tell us, what does it mean to you as a prominent rising star among, you know, attorneys and a young black woman. What does it mean to have her nominated to the Supreme Court? I think this is a time for all black women lawyers to stand up and be proud to finally have someone who looks like us nominated to the Florida, excuse me, the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm so excited that I'm getting my courts confused. It really takes me back, Michael. I'm also the past president of the Gwyneth Cherry Black Women Lawyers Association. And in that capacity, back in 2015, we were vehemently advocating for more diversity on the bench, specifically more black people on the bench. At that time in 2015, here in Miami-Dade County, we did not have one black woman on the circuit court bench in Miami. 
So at that time, we were making sure that we advocated for a diversity, for our increased presence, because we understand that our judges bring with them their life experiences and their perspectives to the bench. And it's very important for us to have a bench that accurately reflects the community that it serves. Because demographics really is not about demographics. It's about perspective and experience and 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 having a diversity on any body yeah, is just that that important. But I, I wanted to, L'Oreal, sort of talk about, you know, the history making first is a history making first at base level. But but think about all of the amazing, competent just women lawyers who are black, who are female, who might have been in this moment in history and, and were not. And is that something that you think about at all? So, Glenna, that's interesting that you phrased it like that. And I do think that we should put that in perspective. In the 232-year history of the Supreme Court, this is our first ever black female justice. 232 years, Glenna. That is very concerning and alarming, but we are thankful that we finally passed that hump. I'm sure there are several jurors that were qualified and actually capable of taking on the position. You know, Constance Baker Motley is someone who immediately jumps out to, to my recollection, and as you all are uh, familiar with, she was the first ever black woman to serve on the federal bench, and that was back in 1966. Um, so I'm sure in between uh, Justice Motley's groundbreaking appointment at that time in 1966 until today, there are several qualified black female um, judges and attorneys that were more than capable of handling the job. But for whatever reason, the dynamics uh, were what they are. And this is Justice Jackson's time. Yeah. L'Oreal, let me ask you to just take a moment and look beyond the legal implications which are profound and just think about things like a a junior high school student a black girl who turns on the news or her parents have got the news on and she sees this black woman nominated by the president I mean what an impact this is going to have on all kinds of young people but particularly young black girls and Michael, that's another excellent point. You know, being homegrown from Miami myself, I attended Miami Carroll City Senior High School, so I won't hold it against Justice Jackson that she attended Palmetto High. <laughs> and I, att <laughs> I attended Carroll City specifically for the legal and public affairs law magnet. I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer because I had people in my community who looked like me that were lawyers. No one in my immediate family, but of course I had role models to look at. And that's really what it's all about is having that visual of someone who looks like you in that position that you can aspire to. Of course, our vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris is another exemplary example for all of the young black women to come behind her. I'm excited for my daughter that she has not only her mommy to look to, but now we have a Supreme Court justice that looks like you. You could accomplish anything that you want to accomplish. And that is, after all, the American dream, right? Is that we are able to accomplish whatever we set our mind to through hard work and dedication. To have a visual now of someone who's in the position that you aspire to is just so inspiring. And a vice president, for the record, there. <laughs> Black women lawyers were everywhere. You know, <laughs> everywhere. 
Can you um, sort of frame what you see as Miami's legacy in this nomination? Well, you know, so the thing is that clearly Miami breeds all type of talent. We don't just breed athletes and entertainers. We breed intellectuals. And I think that that is what's very most inspiring about this nomination is for some reason people talk about the brain drain, uh, the talent leaves South Beach. <laughs> LeBron James came to South Beach, but some of the homegrown talent ends up leaving. Uh, that's unfortunate, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and we are a city of transplants. But I think Justice uh, Jackson's nomination clearly indicates that we are extremely dynamic. Not only are we culturally rich, we're intellectually multifaceted, and we breed scholars. You just have to tap into our resources. Yeah. Well, uh, we want to play a little bit about what uh, Judge uh, Brown Jackson said when she was at the White House, because I thought it was full of grace and it was really an elegant speech. No, we don't have that. But anyway, we're going to take a break. So, Steve, L'Oreal, stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you. Again, we are speaking with L'Oreal Arscott, who is a rising star among Miami attorneys and has worked hard to get uh, black women on the circuit court bench here. Uh, L'Oreal, let me just ask you to comment on the unusual background that she would bring to this. I mean, the one thing that uh, uh, Judge Jackson Brown, Brown Jackson has that is in keeping with other members of the Supreme Court is that she was at Harvard for undergraduate and her law degree, and yet, and she also clerked for Justice Breyer, but she was a federal public defender. I mean, down in the trenches, you know, with criminals being charged in court, trying those cases, uh, there is no member of the Supreme Court who has seen that aspect of the law, I don't think, is there? No, this is the first time that we have a Supreme Court justice who has a um, public defender background, but I think it speaks volumes of Justice Jackson's character and the indoctrination that she received from her family. Her family provided her with the foundation based on what we've heard that, you know, her father was a high school uh, teacher and right. later became an attorney, an attorney for the Miami-Dade County Public School, and her mother was a principal for New World School of the Arts here. So her family clearly was dedicated to public service and to education, and they instilled that in her, and her career tracks that path. Yeah, and if I can jump in here, she also pointed out that her brother uh, was an undercover, is an undercover police detective uh, in Baltimore. Her cousin was the Miami police chief. There is a, a, a sort of a history of service uh, and law enforcement in her family and some of the conservative Republicans who are going to vote on our confirmation uh, might find it hard to sort of take exception with her because of that, wouldn't they? I would definitely think so. And I think that it was very poignant for the justice to point out that background, that lineage, instead of focusing on this other relative that was uh, that received a sentence for a drug possession and was later uh, commuted. The focus should be on the fact that her family has this extensive community, pub, community and public safety um, emphasis and on this law enforcement background. So in other words, she's definitely seen both sides of the coin. 
She has defended criminal uh, defendants and she has relatives who are in law enforcement. She clearly knows the best of both worlds. Speaking of law enforcement and public service, let's switch gears a little bit here. You are the new chair of the Miami-Dade County Independent Civilian Panel, uh, resurrected after a decade because of, I suppose, budget cuts, but resurrected after the murder of George Floyd um, and in response to the outcry after that. Uh, so this is a panel, for anyone who doesn't know, that is a civilian panel that looks into complaints about abuse in uh, police officers in the police department. And you are the chair um, trying to hire a director that's been taking a couple of months. Where, where are you with that? So I, we are excited that we are hitting the ground running. We were recently in panel back in October, so we put it in perspective. We've been doing a lot in such a short period of time. Um, at our last meeting, we have selected our candidate for executive director. At this point, that person, her name is Nicole Burton. I don't think that that's a, a secret any longer. Uh, now it's name... not, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been some other reports, but I'm not letting the cat out back. Um, but her name then goes on to be Board of County Commissioners where they will vote whether or not they're going to agree with the panel's recommendation. And if they do agree with the panel's recommendation, they will then negotiate. So, you know, county politics, we still have a lot of procedural hoops to jump through, but we are hopeful that we will have our executive director in place in short order. So take us through a little bit of, you know, the, the infrastructure of the organization is still being built. Um, in 2024, two years from now, this county, Miami-Dade County, will be electing a new sheriff. It becomes an elected position. Is there a, a concern as to the fate of the infrastructure for this panel that you put in place that it will be strong enough to withstand possible changes that a new sheriff wants to make? So there are some concerns and there's a lot of speculation at this point what the responsibilities of the sheriff will be. Of course, we know we will be receiving a sheriff in 2024, um, but the question right now is what duties and responsibilities will the county board of commissioners um, delegate to that sheriff? That will in turn determine how our panel will be affected. Well, we hope your panel is going to be effective and do good work. Before we run out of time, I would like to point out, I'm sure you are aware and a lot of our viewers, that uh, the state of Florida has had a black woman Supreme Court Chief Justice. Her name was Peggy Quinn. She, she was appointed in 1998 jointly by Jeb Bush and Lawton Childs. Good Lord, could we <laughs> have the two parties agree on anything, but those two gentlemen did agree, and Peggy Quince uh, served with distinction, but right now, as you well know, uh, I don't think there is a woman on the state Supreme Court, black or white. There there isn't a black woman on the Supreme Court, and Justice Quince was phenomenal. She was exemplar to all, all of the black women lawyers and always gave back. She was, you might have thought she was from Miami. We had her down here so many times. She was so instrumental. Um, but that, the composition of Florida Supreme Court also needs to be addressed for certain. It needs to reflect the community that it serves. L'Oreal R. Scott, it is so great to have you on the program, and I hope this is the first time but won't be the last. Thank you very Thank much, Thank you so Gloria. much for having me. You're quite Thank welcome. You All right, up next, Trayvon Martin, 10 years on. Calvin Hughes took a look back at his all-too-brief life and his legacy. And that's it.
decade ago this weekend, we were reporting from Sanford, Florida, documenting Trayvon Martin's death as it became a movement. The teen from Miami Gardens fatally shot by a neighborhood vigilante who was tried and acquitted. Trayvon's parents spoke with local 10 anchor Calvin Hughes about their son's case and his legacy. For nearly everyone, hard to believe a decade has passed since Trayvon's death. Our streets! Our streets! That sparked a major movement. Barely 17 years old, confronted and killed in Sanford, Florida, by a neighborhood watchman. In the circuit court of the 18th Judicial Circuit in and for Seminole County, Florida. And the year that followed in 2013, the stunning verdict of Trayvon's killer. State of Florida versus George Zimmerman. Verdict. We, the jury, find George Zimmerman not guilty. Was salt in the wound for Trayvon's parents, who say from the very beginning their son's case was mishandled. Hours after Trayvon had been shot, Tracy Martin had no idea. We called the hospital. Nobody um, had been admitted to the local hospitals under Trayvon Martin. After filing a missing persons report, Trayvon's father heard back from Seminole County detectives the following day, February 27th. It was a light drizzle, I'll never forget the day, light drizzle. Um, and so I was standing on the porch. We went in the house, sat down and talked. Um, you know, I, he was asking me the last time I seen him and, you know, just general questions. And um, in his folder, he pulled out, he said, I'm gonna show you a picture. And, tell me, is this your son? And so he pulled out the picture and uh, that was the photo of him laying on the ground dead. I was in denial because, you know, this, this, you know, this, this is my son. Um, you know, the last conversation that we had was, you know, I know in fact that, you know, I told him he loved, I love him and he loved me. And now I'm looking at a, a still photo uh, of his lifeless body laying on the ground. When uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Trayvon's case was the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, and a decade later, Trayvon's mother says there is change. I see people being held accountable now, where before they were not being held accountable for taking a person of color's life. Fulton began the Trayvon Martin Foundation in 2012, to stand up and stand with parents who have lost their children to gun violence. I try to encourage them. I try to lift them up. I, t I try to tell them that um, a brighter day is coming. The yearly Peace Walk in Miami Gardens by the foundation has hundreds turning out, honoring the life of Trayvon Martin. My son is resting in power. My son is the voice and sometimes the face for so many other Trayvon Martins that you don't know. He would have been 27 years old, perhaps following his dreams in aviation. I still have his flight suit and everything, man, and so I, I would hope that he would really be a, been a part of that. I think about him all the time, and when I think about him, I asked him, are you proud of me? Are you proud of your mom? And he, you, I could see him smiling, saying yes. 
That was Calvin Hughes reporting. In 2019, George Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon, sued his parents for $100 million in a defamation lawsuit. Last month, that suit was dismissed in Leon County. We'll be right back. Thank you, as always, for being here with us. And remember, we are online 24-7. And remember, as always, stay informed. Get involved. Have a great Sunday.